Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Save the World. We're doing something a little bit different this episode. We are releasing a best of some of our guests, not all of our guests, but some of the guests that we have had a chat to so far. We figured it was time to put them all in one place. There is links to the full episodes of all the people you're going to hear from today, but we thought it was time to celebrate all the incredible Kiwis that we've had a chat to thus far on the series that we've started um, over six months ago now. So we hope you enjoy it and stay tuned. Next week, we'll have a brand new episode. This is the Best of the Guests, Volume 1 on How to Save the World. And this is Di Hemwood. Hi, it's great to be here, actually. I, I love the whole vibe about this podcast. Great. I'm very into saving the world. Excellent. And Excellent. even finding out how I can do it a little bit. Such a buzzword at the moment, the, the word mindfulness, right? Oh, but to me, I think that people actually stopping and thinking and looking will make them care about the environment. Like for me, since I've been going deeper into my meditation and stuff, that idea of just stopping and looking at a tree or looking at the sky and going, wow, that's so beautiful, and just appreciating things at that moment. And for instance, for me, it was like I do eat meat, but I like 10 years ago when I'm going to go with a dude who does home kills and watch him kill the animal, chainsaw it up. And if I can't deal with that, then I have to stop eating meat. And just then seeing this was all like an, on a really um, sustainable farm, you know, like it was a really lovely yeah. place up in Kumu. And seeing that, seeing that done and then the care and then how the owners were like, this one cow is going to last our family of six the entire year. Yeah. We've used every single bit of it. Mm. You know, it was like, okay, that, I think me being involved in that process, that then my meat consumption dropped so much because yes. it was like. And I'm sure it oh, changed when what? you were getting your meat probably as well. Oh, yeah, it was, like, like, it was the, like, hey, should I should, how about I just have this once a week? Yeah. Really mm. care about mm. where it's coming from. Then have more plants in my diet. Everything now is about, oh, I feel like a drunk, grab a drink. Feel, uh, you know, the impulse, We our society is so based towards um, Immediate getting an impulse, mm. fulfilling that impulse, mm. you know. Mm. I want that, boom, tap it. Done. It's at your mm. door. I want to buy that. Oh, Instagram, man, and just two taps. Mm. Um, it's that thing of actually just stop. You know, and I, I, I tried that thing. My sort of New Year's resolutions were health and frugality. This year, and I did that thing, um, guy Kevin Rose, uh, who I follow, a sort of tech guy, but he's um, very concerned about environment and health and that, and he was about, he was just, everything you want to buy, just put in a shopping cart online. and That's wait a good th- idea. Put it in your shopping cart, like you're going to buy it, wait 30 days, then look at it, and if you want mm. it, you want to buy it. Mm. And I, got, I literally go back and go... <laughs> what was I? You know that, but I would have bought that. It would have come, and then oh, I would have. Then yeah. I would have used it half a dozen times. And I think that thing of what really got me thinking as well is finding out rather than just oh, you need to have a reusable bag. Figure out how long that you have to actually use that reusable bag before mm. it's really. Paying dividends. You're a deep thinker, and you kind of always have been. But you're you're a TV personality. You've you know you're on seven days every week, host Dancing with the Stars. You're very visible in a in a very sort of particular role. Yeah. Um. Do you feel any desire or obligation to get some of these ideas out? 
Yes, and uh, I also get to a strange point where I haven't fully formed my opinion and have as... I don't feel like I have the answers, which, I mean, maybe, hmm. unfortunately, around huma- humanity, we don't, we're at a time with all of these questions that don't have the answers, because I also, perverse side of me goes, everything we've done, plastic's natural. Like, if you look at the world, we're humans, we created it, we're on this earth, where it's part of oh, so you, you feel can't like say humans are robot. We're an animal. Like we're not the environment. We are. We're we part are. Of it. Yeah. We're an animal that mm. lives here, like every other animal. But somehow we've developed this ability to make these ridiculous things, like a single-use swing set made yeah. out of plastic that yeah. the manufacturer sort of knows isn't really going to work for more than <laughs> yeah. two times. Yeah, yeah. And then you buy it, and then it's sitting in someone's garden. We that hasn't just sort of been forced on us by our robot overlords. We created it. so It's our biology, isn't it? Technically, it's part of nature because Mm. it came from things, elements that we scientifically put together that all exist on this earth. So we've sort of got us into this strange bind, and I think because things got so exponentially exciting with the idea of what plastic is and what plastic could do, You know, everyone gets excited by the positives. Well, someone, you know, one group out of 20 might have been, hey, what about that? Oh, no, mate, it's all good. Check this out. Yeah. So it's that thing of I feel I'm still in a learning phase. And I, I mean, wherever I could create awareness. And my thing is, I suppose I just want to create awareness about people thinking. There are things that we know. That, that you know already that yeah. are like um, the difference between organic and, and say, regular pesticide uh, agriculture or buying local. Those two things are huge. And your tea that you brought today, uh, supporting yeah. New Zealand's only tea um, estate, and also it's organic, I think that that is actually just huge, and it's it's, it's these it's a prince, it's a really general principle that can apply to almost everything. And um, along with that, eating local is eating seasonally. Like just yes. go, go to the yeah. yes. the fruit store I go to in New Lynn's great because they've got they've got all these charts up over, oh. over their different things of what's in season. Oh, that's what, cool. That's and, very cool. But everything's very much labelled as this is in season and grown in New Zealand, this is not in season and this has come from Peru, you know, which a lot of places don't have that. You just put an orange, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. Yeah. And so it's really interesting going, oh, so that's what that's what we're in. That's what we're you supposed know, to be eating yeah. Yeah. We don't even summer know months. half the time, eh? No, because it's yeah. actually scary it? if you go, so what's the courgette season? You know, it's like I think that's yeah. really recent mm. too, because mm. it's just there's a few things that have happened the last like 30, 20, 30 years that have allowed us to do that. Because I feel like my parents, definitely my grandparents, they knew everything that was mm. you known yeah. for the veggies mm. and fruits and mm. stuff. Um, so we've been sipping this delicious tea yes. from New Zealand. Um, what's the company called again? Zeelong is the name of the It's uh, so tea. tasty. And I really like the whole. Um, you know, beyond just it being a lovely drink, this whole loaded philosophy with sort of slowing down and stuff. Mm. Yeah, so this guy so who true. started um, Zilong, he came over from um, Taiwan and he had like 
like say 300 tea plants that he brought over. Maff kept them and kept them for something like 12, 13 months. They sort of got lost in the thing. He got, he came and got them and there was only like eight <gasps> left. But he was along the full Buddhist thing of I now have the eight strongest tea plants. <laughs> yes. Oh, my So goodness. these plants are so strong. And then he planted them and now he's taken over this dairy farm. Um, down in Gordonton, just out of Hamilton. You can see it from the main road, Yeah, eh? it's a beautiful place to go. They've got a wonderful sort of shop. They've got a um, restaurant, and then you can sort of sit and look out over the tea plantations. And it's so beautiful just anywhere seeing anything that's sort of replacing something with green. Yeah. <laughs> we have an incredible guest in who I'm very uh, honoured and pleasured to introduce, Miriam Kamo. Oh, thank you. Thank so you nice to be here. I think it's quite useful if you come from a culture where you um, you have deities for you know different parts of the environment because um, you are mindful of the earth just by growing up that way. So you know have, you're you're mindful of the ngahiri of the forest, um, of the winds, of everything really that that lives and that you try to um, you try to live with in harmony with you know, um, and so. I think in any indigenous culture, there are great um, kind of templates for how to how to live zero waste. Yeah, um, it seems to be more like across the entire world, indigenous cultures have a far more holistic way of looking at. Yeah, and it is live. that connectedness. Yeah, we were talking about it before. Yeah, even the some... idea of fucker papa. Yes, as that, that connection, and we use it as as people to connect with each other, but very much so around things as well. Yeah, uh, and the idea that this thing just appears and we consume it and then it goes away. If we if we can shift to a much more holistic point of view and look at uh, this. Where it came from. Where it came from, the fact that it's connected and it exists and it actually has all these relationships that just didn't just appear. Mm. It probably was extracted from some particular part of the earth and probably mm. it's got a history and a story. And the more we connected with that, the more we can understand what happened, you know, that complex past and that long future that our stuff has. Absolutely. And yeah. start making decisions that are more aligned with our values. Um, Hannah and Liam from The Rubbish Trip have this really great um, line where they say there's no magic delete button. When you put your stuff in the rubbish, that's not, it, that doesn't stop existing. It mm. still goes on and, and mm. has stories attached to it. It goes through other hands. And, and even when it's rotted in the landfill, it's creating more, you know, it's still having an impact. That's right. It um, really doesn't go away. And then when, you know, when that storm rips through and the landfills suddenly opened up and mm. it's all over the beach, we're just looking at the images of that going, that stuff looks like it was just from yesterday. Yeah, I know. It's terrifying. It doesn't go away. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, the plastic stuff particularly, of course. Um, the other thing I was going to say about Māori Dim is that um, we have a um, mahi ngakai um, tradition too. So, so where we gather our food, um, is really important and we were talking about Birdlings Flat earlier and the um, lake there is called Wairewa and that, that was a um, legendary food bowl in, um, in Canterbury I mean it still is it's where um, there's an incredible n- number of different species of fish and birds and that sort of thing and um, and that lake has become poisoned and the reason for that is that the hills surrounding it were stripped of um, the trees to build Christchurch uh, which meant that the silt just just runs straight into the lake. And so we have in some parts of the lake about a metre and a half of, of this sludge at the bottom. So it makes it poisonous. So um, 
Uh, there was rahui, which meant that you can't um, take tuna or eel from there a couple of years ago. And it has to be pretty, like it's a really big deal to put a rahui on, on, on a place. So um, for Māori, this notion of being able to safely collect food is really important and to be able to do that directly with the land without, you know, you, you don't need to go to the shops to <laughs> buy your car. You can actually collect it. And I remember as a kid, my parents always had a bag in the back of the car um, and we would screech to a halt all the time, huh. wherever we we're going, because they would see puha on the side of the road. And so, the next thing you knew, mum and dad were out there, um, you know, making us go with them to collect the puha. And so, um, but now you have to be kind of careful about that. You can't well, yeah, rely on the been, safety of it. Could have been sprayed, sprayed, or it's just got um, you know effluent, and you know you just never know if this, the waterways are safe to collect from anymore. So. So that's a really big deal in Māori term is knowing that we can safely still mahinga kai, collect our kai. Mm, so having that connection to the land is just a natural way to connect to these broader issues around sustainability. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've probably forgotten a lot of the stuff that was hard, but I remember um, I was terrified to take my own containers. Were you? Terrified. To to work, you mean, or to a shop? To a shop. Oh, actually, yeah. oh, I can relate to that. Totally feel I it. was so frightened. It was just ridiculous when I look back, because I, I literally now I don't give a damn. I will take my containers everywhere and, and present them everywhere, and I don't even think about whether they'll be accepted or not anymore. Yeah, we, yeah, you do. So you you shift over forgotten. to the other side yes, and forget yeah. that. So if anyone yeah. was surprised, I'd probably be like, what? You don't take my container? Huh? But why would not? No, just, just do it. Does that ever happen? Um... Uh, no, it, it happened once on Waiheke where, um, but of it turned out that the, yeah, I'm shocked. <laughs> it was in the, yeah. in the supermarket, but I remember the woman um, who was serving us, as it turned she had kind of clearly was having a bad day. Okay. Um, and we did, I was able to use my container in the end. It's only been once yeah. though, I've been yeah. really lucky. So, but the very first time, so it was probably January two or three and I was like, oh, I'm doing the zero waste. Oh shoot, I need to go to the mall. I have to take my own containers if I want to buy anything. And so I packed my little bag up and I went to the mall and then I piked out because I was like, I don't want to present my containers. <laughs> and also, this is so embarrassing. I took a keep cup, which I'd actually been using for a little while, sort of on and off. But then I was like, oh, I have to use this all the time. But I forgot to wash it before I took it in. So I was like, there's my keep cup. got my container. got this, got that. And I went in. And then I went to a tea place. And I was like, yes, I'll sample your tea. Just put it in my keep cup. And it had grotty old milk in it. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, it's all right. I'll clean it. <laughs> so that was a very good, sharp lesson right there we like to on this podcast um each episode have one single thing that is like the most impactful relative to how easy it was it literally is taking your containers that that is the most easy thing i mean i have do you think we sold it well like yeah, <laughs> taking yeah. yeah after actually, sharing really candidly about how completely mortifying well, you, we remember found yours it. was ten years ago, yes, and mine was eight months ago, and now there is a lot of discussion in the, in in the media about you know trying to reduce your waste. So we're people are more open to it now. I mean, maybe I don't know. Am I? Are we all a little bit brainwashed by ourselves? In the bubble? Do you, you think? Know? Yeah. Do people actually? feel like they can take their containers. I hope they do because actually it's really easy to do that. I just have my backpack all the time and I always have, you know, I've got this tea flask now because I love tea and I always take a a bottle because I will never buy a plastic bottle again 
never, unless some, I don't know, God, it would just have to be the most extraordinary circumstances. I cannot imagine that I would ever, ever buy a plastic bottle again because I went out with the sea cleaners mm, in Auckland Harbour. Hayden. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, oh, my God, that was one of the most wonderful days ever. I, c- I couldn't recommend that more as a really great day out, weirdly, sloshing around in the mud and water. I thought it was going to be miserable. It was raining, you know, I'm going to go out in the wet and the cold and collect rubbish from and crap from the um, inlets. Actually, it was one of the most wonderful, fantastic things I've ever what done. What did you like about it? Um, I, probably a sense of purpose, I, I think. But also just the community going out first thing in the morning. You're on a mission, so you've got a purpose and you're doing it with other people. And so you you know, you know, chat, you meet other people, you get to chat to them. It's fun. You're engaged in an activity um, and you can see the, you can see the um, impact of what you're doing because you, you clear everything up and then you... Um, you know, you get back on the boat and you leave. And as you look back, you can see that it's clear. Whereas when you're coming in, you can see there was tons and tons of rubbish. You can see the rubbish bags building up on the um, boat. So you can actually see the um, results of what you're doing. And Nice and changeable. Yeah. Mm. And, and you're doing something. When you're doing something, as we were talking before, when you're taking action, it's really satisfying. Um so I loved it. So, and after that, though, because we picked up so many plastic bottles, I was like, okay, that's the end. I'm not having a plastic bottle again. And I'm joined by guest co-host, um, beloved New Zealander, recent recipient of the New Zealand Order of Merit, I understand. Yes. It's Robin Malcolm. Hello. Hey. Hello. You've got a little mini one. I've got a mini one. And then on the 20th of September, I go and get my big one. The, the problem at the moment is with climate change is that we can't afford for change to be really slow anymore. Yeah. We just can't. I, I was talking to someone recently that uh, I think, Probably what's required is for a political party to be called "We're out of fucking time." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, <laughs> the we're, the we're fucked if, unless we do something, party. Yeah, like now or like yesterday. Yeah, you know? do something. The day that Trump got elected, because it was such a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and watching the results roll in in real time, like I'll never forget that day as long as I live. And I went pescatarian that day from being a massive meat eater. And then uh, this year, I've actually gone vegan as well. And it's, wow! And the thought process behind it has honestly just been: I give up on politics. I was on a plane from Los Angeles to New York the night of the election, and I left Los Angeles just as they were starting to count the votes. Oh and God. I arrived in New York when they just announced who the next leader. And honestly, it was like I'd walked into the biggest funeral in yeah. the world. It was just quiet. And you were in her country. Is it like in New York City? You were in her her ground as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Was a and his. I mean, the great thing was that yeah, we, I ended up being part of the protest outside Trump Towers the week later or whatever. But it was the most extraordinary thing, feeling this plane as we flew across the country, the kind of the, yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah. and then quiet. And then we all got off the plane and it was, it was like there was almost no life in that city. And you know what? There's a part of me that just thinks, guys, you know, I mean, I know there's, you know, like I, I watch all those news channels and they have all those, uh, it's because they can't afford to send a journalist out in the field anymore. So they have those, um, you know, the CNNs and all the rest of it. And they all sit around and they discuss stuff. You know, they have yeah. all their experts come in and they all wring their hands and they, you know, 
and I just think, fuck you guys, you know, fuck you. You you voted him in and you vote to keep guns in and Mm. you wring your hands in the news and nothing happens. Mm. Like, do something. But politics has to do it. Like, the, the only way to really change stuff, the only way to change it to the degree that it needs is legislation. Because people do want to do the right thing, eh? I think, thing. I think that's the thing. I think people do. But sometimes doing the right thing seems, like, really serious and too hard. Yeah. So making it specific, but also... Um, Finding the joy in it, finding the joy in it, absolutely. I mean, I remember, I remember years ago, the the international head of Greenpeace, this guy Kumi Naidu, came over and he um, spoke at a pub in Kingsland, and I went along to hear him. And there's a lot of the the problem with all of this is there's a lot of should. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. We should be. You should. You should. You should. You should. You should. And 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 what comes alongside with that is, and you're not, and you're not doing it, and you're not doing it, and you're not doing it. So we're all wrong. We're always wrong because we're not doing the right thing, and that's why the plan. So there's a lot of bad feeling. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of anxiety. And so I said to him towards the end, I said, "How do I? We get all of this. How do you? How do you?" actually motivate people how do you do it because it's not working yet there aren't enough of us who care yet there aren't enough of us who care to the extent that we want to change our lives for it so how do you make that happen and he didn't really have an answer back then or not one that I remembered interestingly last week I spoke to Ollie Langridge outside the beehive and uh somebody from um, the Extinction Rebellion, I asked them the same question, and they said it's about positive change. It's about finding a way to convince people that these choices will make their lives better and will also make them feel great. What is one thing you would like to leave people with who are listening to this? Um, I, I think part of the problem is that don't you wag your finger at me and tell me how to live my life. That's fine. It's like we now have all the information. We do have it. It's out there. We know that, you know, the science is telling us a thing and it's pretty much indisputable except by the Flat Earth Society. So make the choice your own. Don't sit back and be told what you should be doing by other people because that'll just piss you off. Make the choice yourself so you get informed. Read, you know, just read read something. Find out and empower yourself with those choices because one thing I do know is that it feels really great when you do. It doesn't feel good to be told what to do. It doesn't feel good to be told that you're living the wrong life and that you're an asshole for doing that. It really feels good when you take that power back and just, I mean, even down to, fuck it, I'm just not going to eat Doritos anymore. Our special guest today, Sophie Hanford from, uh, well, from a couple of different organisations that sort of tap into the sustainability buzz. 
but for what we want to uh, talk about today, the School Strikers for Climate. Yes. You're yep. one of the big organisers in New Zealand. I am. I'm the one that kind of initiated it along with a few others to bring the movement to Aotearoa. Mm, well done. Hey. Good on you. Yeah. yeah. Paki Paki, first off. That's fantastic. Oh, that's wicked. what I love about mm. the school strike movement is that anyone can register a strike. We're happy to promote it no matter how many people they think will be there. And the other cool thing which I love about the movement that people might not know is that we have kids as young as eight organising events in their communities. And the oldest person in the movement is 21 uh, in our organising team. So this is all being organised and all of the media and all of the background work, contacting police and the councils is all being done by people between the ages of 8 and 21. Wow. Impressive. The way the movement originated from a 16-year-old girl shows that um, it's kind of a youth-led movement just because the way she's been leading it internationally. So for us here, it's important that we stand in solidarity with those people Mm. um, in the other generations. But um, when we've seen a lot of inaction from those generations that have come before us, we do feel that kind of weight of um, us young people actually needing to try and wake up a generation. But obviously we want to work alongside adults. Do you feel like as someone within the movement that it's actually having an impact? Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think we've we've seen that in the way that We've been having calls from the Prime Minister's PA Mm. with her wanting to meet with us in the way that the conversation around climate change has started to shift in the way that Stuff um, released an article a few weeks back with the list of the people and the groups that are considered most influential in this time of the climate crisis. And, you know, there was the Minister of Climate Change and the CEO of Fonterra and people from Air New Zealand and, and places like that. But School Strike for Climate New Zealand was on that list. Fantastic. So I think that it's just proving the impact that um, we're able to have. And we've been told by the climate change minister himself, James Shaw, that the school strike for climate is an example that keeps coming up as um, almost giving the our leaders the social mandate and that kind of, um, yeah, so for them to be able to say that there are so many young people who are fighting for their future. They're, they're fearful, they're scared, but they're also trying to, Um, unite with us to form this vision for a better world that we all know is possible. So I think it's quite uh, an inspiring call to action for our elected leaders. And I think that conversation is really starting to happen through Parliament. Mm. It's really hard to to look you in the eye because it's it's – usually I think there's a combination. If if you've got an older person and a young person, I think there'll be one of the two that doesn't really get it. Yeah, but mm. in this case, it's like, I get it. I totally get it. I understand what sort of a world you're going into, what it will be like when you're my age. And it's like, it gets you, it gets your gut. It does. And it, it it really does. And honestly, there are nights when I just can't stop shaking and I'm scared that, you know, if, if I do want to bring kids into this world, that it won't be a place that I feel comfortable handing on to them. Um But I also feel more hopeful than ever, actually, Um, with the school strike movement and Indigenous peoples around the world standing up to fight for what they know is right. And I feel like this will end up becoming like, um, you know, who's actually on the right side of history. And that's been something that we've been trying to highlight to our MPs throughout the Zero Carbon Bill submission processes as well, is that... When you look back and, you know, you're thinking about what kind of an MP you were and you're looking at this crisis and where we've gotten to, do you want to, you know, how are you going to feel 
if you look your grandkids in the eye and say that, you know what, I could have taken action, but I didn't. If someone were to say to you, <laughs> just say yeah. uh, that, what, ask you, what is the one most important thing that you think people could do uh, to save this planet, to resolve the situation? What would it be? I would probably say using their skills in a collective movement. So for some people that might be writing or um, doing podcasts or doing art or, um, you know, writing media releases and things like that. But what I feel like is really important in this crisis is that we all recognize what skills we have and then connect with other people who might have different skills and work out how we use those to create a collective movement in certain areas. But I think around the conversation and how it's affecting people, I think also because the earth and this being our home is the one thing that we all have in common, that that notion is starting to hit people as well and I think but also that can make people feel powerless and that's what I've found is like because it's a global issue it affects you know our whole home and our whole earth is to be one person out of seven billion um, when there are these massive emitters you look at the 100 companies which are responsible for 72 percent of global emissions and then you think that you know, you're just one person and from New Zealand and young and, you know, I feel like that is where um, people maybe feel like they, or if they, even if they do take, you know, action in their own lives, it won't make a difference. But I mean, my message to that would be a journey only starts with one step. And if we all don't try, then how are we ever going to know if we could have averted the crisis? If we all sit back and say, oh, well, my action won't make a difference, so I'm not going to mm, try. Mm, um, mm. Then we're just wasting time, frankly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of How to Save the World. That was the Best of the Guests, Volume 1. Uh, there will be some more of those episodes coming later down the pipe, but there'll be a brand new episode for you dropping on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. Feel free to share this episode with friends or like-minded people, and it really helps us out if you can leave us a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. Until next time, ka kite anō.